Welcome into ScoopsWithDannyMac.com. As you know, this website provides daily writing from Bernie Miklas, a look at the minor leagues with Brian Walton on Wednesdays, Ben Fredrickson at the Post-Dispatch on Fridays, Jim Powers has the high school scene covered all across the website. There's countless podcasts and contributions from Martin Kilcoin of Fox 2. Well, this podcast coming to you from the Lou Fuse Automotive Studios it's a little different. With the passing of my dear friend Tim McCarver, I thought it would be a great time to let fans hear a conversation I had with both Tim and Bob Gibson together back in 2017. This covers the Cardinals, winning years, their friendship, and so much more. Like you, I miss these two so much. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Baseball Hall of Famer Bob Gibson and Cardinals Hall of Famer Tim McCarver. I think one of the great moments that we'll have in St. Louis this year is the fact that Tim McCarver is going into the Cardinals Hall of Fame. He'll wear a red jacket. And guys, we have a big crowd, so make sure those mics are up. But Tim, what does it mean to go into the Cardinals Hall of Fame? Well, I've come full circle with the Cardinals. I signed as a 17-year-old 10 days out of high school uh, in 1959. Uh, I took a trip with my, the scout that signed me, and uh, I took infield with the Cardinals, and then I went to Waterloo, Iowa, uh, to play for the Keokuk Cardinals, and the umpiring crew that night featured Brent Musburger behind home plate. And that's how my career started. My very first game was with Brent. I don't know if you knew this or have cared about it. I cared, Tim. <laughs> that means he doesn't. But anyway, Brent Musburger was a home plate umpire. And, and that kind of started things. And I was with the Cardinals from 59 through 69. And then I was traded in a in a, an epic deal with Kurt Flood. Uh, and of course, Kurt uh, uh, elected not to go. And, uh, and history was in the making. It went to the Supreme Court. And six years later, free agency hit. Um, and then, of course, I, uh, I worked a lot of postseason play for the networks. I worked with Joe Buck for 18 years. And uh, I did some Cardinal uh, World Series games. The, the most iconic that I can remember was game six of the 2011 season. How can you go wrong? It's, it's amazing about that World Series in that everybody remembers game six so much more than they remember game seven. And game... And game seven was a tremendous game. And had it not been for a pickoff in the first inning by Yadier Molina, the Cardinals may have lost that game. That was a pivotal play in that series. But anyway, and I'm back with the Cardinals, so I've come full circle. And, um, and being voted into the Hall of Fame means everything to me. Uh, because it, it, it really does. particularly with a guy like Mark McGuire, uh, and to go in with him uh, is very, very special. Uh, he says it's special for him. Uh, I, th I think it's more special for me to go in with him uh, because of what he did for this organization for uh, very impactful years in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So I hope I sum that up what the Cardinals Hall of Fame means to me, it uh, means a great deal. And as a tag, this guy means a great deal to me too. Bob, we were talking last night. The relationship with Tim got off to a little bit of a rocky start. <laughs> A little rocky, but yet you guys found common ground on the field, off the field, and you become the best of friends. Well, yeah, Tim was a, a little stubborn. 
Hold on, Bob. You calling someone stubborn? <laughs> I, I guess we all were a little stubborn back in those days. Uh, we had uh, we had an awful lot of problems back in the uh, late fifties. I have to admit that it was a long time ago that I, I made my appearance with the Cardinals. But back in the the late fifties uh, and sixties, there were a lot of problems not only with the Cardinals and not only with the uh, baseball players, but uh, with our country. And I came up during that time. So I was, a little, I was a little angry, and I'm not even sure today what I was angry about, but I was angry. And life was just very difficult. It was very difficult. And when I met Tim, he was very difficult. <laughs> but uh, as the years went on, we, we got to like each other, and it got to the point where, and I hate to say this, it got to the point where we loved each other. And we love each other now, and it's just wonderful. It's awesome. Why did it click between you two on the field? How did it click? Why did it click? Well, it, it clicked because I uh, did pretty much what I wanted to do. <laughs> And I, I, I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to what Tim suggested. <laughs> and we got on just fine. I had no problem with it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you the genesis of that was Johnny Keene, our manager, who took over for Solly Hemus in 1961. My first full year was 1963. And he would say to me that, there's one pitcher you're having a problem with. And I said, mm, who? And John said, Gibson, you've got to slow him down. And I said, John, he doesn't want to be slowed down. He's told me that. And, and now I'm 21, I'm trying to make the team. And I said, John, you know, and I had to, I had to word this delicately. I said, John, I mean, you're the manager. If, if you want to slow him down, why don't you suggest it? And, and honestly, to this day, I think John was afraid to slow Bob down. And I said, he likes to work fast. And he told me, whatever you think of first, put it down. If I don't want it, I'll shake it off. That's pretty, that's pretty basic stuff. Well, right? For, for yeah. anybody, by the way, that, that watches our games, they know that, that you love mound visits, Tim. Oh, You're man. a big fan of those. Well, Bob, Bob, Dan, Bob taught me that, that what should be, what's talked about on the mound, most of it's superfluous anyway. All it, of it's it, superfluous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it is. I'll guarantee you what mound visits are all about. The pitching coach comes out and he says, how do you feel? You got to tell him about Barney Schultz. I can't really tell you everything about Barney because some of the language that I use is just uh, not the middle. <laughs> I can't say it. But, but you got to, I mean, Barney threw a knuckleball. And to give you an idea about Bob's idea about, uh, about mound visits, uh, Barney used to come to the mound, and, and Bob would look at him and say, Barney, you threw a knuckleball. Now, if I threw a knuckleball, it, it would be right for you to be out here. But I don't throw a knuckleball. <laughs> so get on back in the dugout. <laughs> right or wrong? I mean, Well, that's absolutely right. You can really help me a lot. And I was being facetious, first of all. And he says, oh, yeah, really, Bob, what can I do? I said, just don't screw with me. And, and, and it really kind of broke his heart and hurt his feelings. But I, I really didn't know what he could tell me. If, if there was going to be an intelligent conversation, it was going to be between Tim and me, not Barney and me, you know, because I didn't throw a knuckleball. And I thought that was kind of strange that we had a knuckleball pitcher that was our pitching coach. And I had already been pitching for about 12, 13 years. And I don't know what Barney could have told me. As a matter of fact, he, did, he never told me anything that was helpful. Nothing. 
Wow. And then, and then one day, one night in Philadelphia, Bob was uncharacteristically being hit around. I think the Phillies had scored like seven runs and three and a third or something like that. No, and, that, that never happened. <laughs> no. uh, uh, may, maybe, maybe four earned runs over maybe, three and Maybe a third. three, four, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> seven, it was nine. an unusual outing. And finally, Barney Red, Red kept saying, Barney, go out and talk to him. And Barney, go out and talk to him. And I was playing first base that night. Joe Torrey was at third, and Ted Simmons was the catcher. It was 1973. And Barney comes out, and it took him forever to get out there because he knew Bob did not want to see him on the mound, obviously. And when Barney got there, Bob said, Barney, where have you been? <laughs> I've been getting my ass lit up, and you finally show up. Remember that? That's a true story. I don't remember that one. <laughs> Actually, you know, when uh, you, you see the guys run out and pile up around the mound, and especially when you see the uh, third baseman, the shortstop, and the second baseman, the first baseman, and they all come, you know, what in the hell are they coming out there for to begin with? <laughs> They're trying to see what Tim is telling me or, or what? And so I don't like for any of them to come. When you, come, when you see guys go out there and maybe we have a situation where they're, uh, we want to bring the infield in or we want to do this or we want to trick play or something, then that's fine. There should be a special sign for everybody to come in. Otherwise, don't come out to the mound. Stay away. If the, if the catcher is coming out and he wants to talk to me, then that's fine. I don't need the rest of you guys to listen to what he's going to tell me. It's not a secret. You know, and I just don't believe that, that we should have a meeting on the mound with the whole team. Why not bring the outfielders in, too? <laughs> if we're going to have something that's tricky, the outfielders need to know about it, too. You know. So, Tim, were these uh, a couple of fans on giveaway night or something like that? So were these conversations on the mound one-way conversations? Bob talking to you and you just kind of nodding and I would never talk I would never talk Bob told me I mean the famous line and this actually happened when I was my first full year in 1963 I was out there and Bob said Tim why are you out here why don't you get behind the plate because the only thing you know about pitching is that it's hard to hit <laughs> well it's that, a true that, story. That, that is a true story, but you got to know what's behind all of it. Um, you know, Tim was a very, very nervous type person. He still is, as a matter of fact. And, and he, he hated for somebody to get on him about anything, you know. And so I just like to give him a hard time because he'd come out, and he didn't come that often, but, you know, I stopped him from coming as often as he did, and he kind of stayed away. But he'd come out and he'd say something that was pretty obvious. There's a man on first. I'm like, shit, I just put him there. I, 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 I know he's there. You know. All right. After all these years, Bob, it, it, the number 1.12, does it resonate you know, with you of just how great of accomplishment that was? Well, what I, what I think about more, more so than that is that I lost nine games. And I, I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, we just, we didn't, we didn't score a lot of runs. And, and uh, if you gave up a run, there was a pretty good chance you were going to lose. <laughs> so I, uh, I get a guy on. Uh, I'll tell you, here's another story. Tim, Tim, my buddy Tim. We, we get a guy on first and third with nobody out. And... Uh, Tim comes out to the mound. This is one of the few trips he made to the mound. And sometimes it's absolutely necessary to come out because we've got to straighten some, straighten some things out. And Tim says, um, you know, we got a man on first and third, and there, there are no outs. He says, if the ball comes to you, Maxville is covering second. So on a double play, we go to Maxville. I says, no. 
He says, what? I said, no. What do you mean? I said, if the ball comes to me, I'm coming to you. God damn it, ain't the way you play the game. That's the way we're playing the game today. If it comes to me, I'm coming to you. I'm not going to give up a run because we only score one run, and I need two to win. You had a bigger lead, though, then. You had a five. Jim Ray Hart. No. Jim Ray Hart of the Giants let off the inning with a triple. Bob walked the next guy, and that's what caused this nobody out first and third. And the ball, and sure enough, Jim Ray Hart ended the inning on third base. He didn't score. You see, but with, but with Bob, that's it's one instant. But the the best example of Bob and how the Cardinals didn't score runs that year, and that's true. Um, 1968, we were in Pittsburgh, and we lost one to nothing, and Bob had pitched that night. Again. Again, one to nothing. He says again. I think he lost four one nothing games that year. Four, maybe four five, or five. Four or maybe five. five. And um, I went by him. And I, I, you know, this is like the third or fourth time this has happened. And I kind of whacked him on the back. And I said, Bob, you, you did a great job. And Bob said, Great job, my ass. <laughs> In front of everybody, all the time. And I thought, Oh, boy, I, I'm sorry I did this said great job and then he said you guys need to score some bleeping runs <laughs> and and then maybe th anyway i went to shave and everything and i felt all bad i don't even know why i felt bad i was telling him nice job I mean, he loses one nothing gave up one run in nine innings and i went to shave and bob came back in typical gibsonian fashion he was apologizing and he whacked me on the rear end with a towel and things went on. But I've, I've never forgotten that, um, that moment. It was, it was a gesture of, uh, of really who Bob is and what he's all about. What was it like catching 1.12? What made him so successful that year? Well, what it was like, I guess, more than anything else is that I caught a lot of the pitches that Bob threw because the, Nobody hit them. I mean, it's that simple, really. Uh, I mean, to, ch to have some sport change their rules uh, because of one performer, one. And, and, and it's not to say that, that the rest of the pitching in the National League was that shabby. I mean, Juan Marichal won 26 games that year. Uh, Gaylord Perry was emerging into a Hall of Famer, but there was one man who stood alone, and he made them change the mound from 15 to 10 inches in one season. And I don't think the funny thing, and all of Bob's friends love this, Bob's never forgiven baseball because of that, right? Yeah, I was wondering if I could still sue them over that. I don't <laughs> I ought to be able to do, get some kind of money out of it. So you hear, Bob, that they're going to do this and change the rules and lower the mound. What was your reaction? You know, I, I wasn't even aware of it, uh, that that's what they were going to do. And I didn't know at the time that, that it was going to, after they did it, that it was going to affect the pitching that much. And as far as I was concerned, it, it, didn't, it really didn't hurt me that much because I threw more uh, three-quarters but the guys who threw straight over the top like walk-up pitches now, they had the big problem trying to get the ball down, especially on their breaking ball. They hung a lot of breaking balls, but I didn't throw a lot of curveballs anyway, so I, I just kind of laughed at them. <laughs> Change it, do whatever you want to do. You know, We weren't going to score any more runs, so it didn't make any difference. The first game, by the way, of the 1968 World Series, Bob set an all-time record by striking out 17, 17 Detroit Tigers. <laughs> Willie Horton, Willie Horton was the left fielder for the Detroit Tigers, and he swears to this day, he still works 
in Detroit at the ballpark. And I see him, I used to see him more than occasionally when doing the network stuff, but he still thinks that last pitch hit him. <laughs> I said, Willie, that was a strike. He said, that ball was inside. I said, Willie, that ball was not inside. All you have to do is look at it. The ball was a strike, but it was a backup slider that Bob threw. And Bob threw so many backup sliders to right-handed batters that they would see the spin of the ball and think it was outside and go outside to hit it, and the ball stayed inside, and it was a strike. It was in the strike zone. It was almost unto. You didn't try to do that. No, no. The, the backup sliders are usually thrown when a, when a pitcher wants to throw a slider and he overthrows it. He tries to throw it too hard. He wants to make it break a lot really quick, and he gets on top. You have to be on top of it. When I say on top, I mean up here rather than over here. And uh, you let the ball go this way rather than that way. The slider has to be thrown that way, not this way. And a backup slider, what happens is you get on top too much and you try to snap it, and instead of it going that way, it goes that way. And you don't throw backup sliders on purpose, but it's usually for overthrowing. Most of the time, you say, ah, it's a backup slider. The guy is overthrowing the ball. And it works sometimes, but I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> Not for young pitchers. No, though. don't advise it. For both of you, I'll start with Tim. 64, 67, 68. What's the best team? I don't think there's any question. 1967. Um, well, I mean, I'm talking about really good ball, uh, ball clubs and, and really good ball players. And, and some left after 1964. I mean, Kenny Boyer was no longer there. Uh, Dick Grote was no longer there. And there were... Uh, a, a lot of guys who had left. But the one guy that soldered our team together from a base running standpoint and made the 1967 team click, and I mean click like, no, we, we never made mistakes. We were all very stubborn, and there was nobody who, who made fewer mistakes and was more stubborn than Lou Brock. He, he, Lou Brock taught us what daring would do on the bases. We weren't as fast as Lou, but we paid attention to Lou and saw the defense when Lou was running the bases. And you talk about uh, scared, nervous, all defensive, the middle infielders in particular with Lou running the bases that the outfielders on shallow fly balls if Lou was on third and less than two outs. I mean, this guy was, the, I, I know Ricky Henderson was a very exciting base runner, but for my money, Lou Brock was the most important base runner um, of our time. You agree, Bob? I agree. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On to the next subject. 67, though. Very, very competitive team, as Tim talked about. And uh, we mentioned it last night. It's one of your favorite teams you've ever been a part of. 67. Yeah. The, the, the best thing about that ball club is that we didn't make a, a, a lot of mental mistakes. You're going to make errors. If you're, if you're out there, that ball will make a fool out of you a lot of times. And you're going to make some physical errors, but you'll find that the teams that make the least amount of mental errors and is a good ball club are usually the teams that are going to win. And we made very few mental mistakes. And, and one of the reasons we didn't make a lot of mistakes is that we had, um, we had a system. We had a system on the ball club when somebody did something just really dumb. Uh, the next day, this is true, the next day before the game started, we get in the clubhouse and everybody gets dressed and everything. And before we would go out to work out, we go, "Okay, guys, we're going to have a baseball quiz today." And everybody would gather around because they all knew what was going to happen. 
somebody was going to get really run into the ground. And, and it usually it was, it was Dave Ricketts or it was myself. And what we would do is emulate the person who made this boner here. And said, bring it up to everybody. We're going to, and you know, and like in spring training, in, in the clubhouse in spring training, we had this big pillar that went up. It was metal. And we take a baseball bat and we go bang, bang, bang on this pillar. And everybody said, uh oh, baseball quiz. And we all run in and sit around. You guys are going, we're going to give you three guesses to figure out who this is. And then we would do this really dumb thing that somebody did. And then you only have three guesses. And we says, oh, let's see who that could be. That could be, it's Lou Brock. <laughs> and everybody said, yes, that's it. And they would cost him $25 just for being dumb. Not for making an error, just being dumb. And so we were all aware of doing dumb things. And so we did make, uh, we made physical errors and you're gonna do that. That's the name of the game, you're gonna make those. But you can't do the dumb things. You can't be the guy who's on first base and a guy on second base with two outs and the guy on first base get picked off. You can't do that. That is stupid. First of all, where are you going? There's a guy on second, you can't go anywhere. Unless you just absolutely fall asleep at first, there's no reason to get picked off. It happens, it happens. If you, if you live long enough, you're gonna do something stupid. Everybody but me, I never did any of that stuff. Tim did it. So, <laughs> so that's true, because it called, what we did, I mean, there was humor involved and when you screwed up, it was kind of fun. Not fun to screw up, but we made it fun. And nobody made it more fun than Bob. Here's what Bob did in September of every year that we played together. There was a blackboard right next to Red's office, Red Shandy's. And Bob would put his back to the team and we'd all get very comfortable in our chairs and the whole bit, kick back and watch Bob talk about the guys who were not gonna be there the next year. <laughs> he would write I down, didn't do that. Yes, you did. It was hilarious. And, and one year, and I forget, you know, the years run into each other, but one year, Bob, Always, he and Lou were on the team for the next year. But after that, things were iffy. <laughs> everybody was at, at uh, everybody was in danger of not returning to the Cardinals the following year. So Bob starts out, he puts his own name in that uh, describable handwriting of his, impeccable. And then Lou Brock, those are the only two. So then he thought about it for a while, and he thought, man, McCarver, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> We're not sure whether you're coming back next year or not. And so he put a question mark behind my name. Dal Maxville, yeah, a little weak on offense. We're not sure you're coming back, so a question mark. So then, about the rest of the roster, there was a question mark behind their name. And and the, and, and the guys in the room, the players, in uniform, became very quiet. The reason was Bing Devine, the general manager, had just come in the clubhouse. So we're scared to death that Bing's going to figure out what's going on. And Bob noticed this, of course, turned around and he said, Bing, don't worry, you'll be gone too. <laughs> Classic Gibson. Classic. I want to go back to Lou Brock. Brolio for Brock. You're rooming with Kurt Flood. You hear that you're getting this guy, Lou Brock, for Ernie Brolio, who had been very good for the club. What was your reaction, Bob, and what was Flood's reaction? Well, Brock, not Brock, but Broglio had won 21 games that year. And Lou Brock was 
nobody knew who Lou Brock was. He was a young kid, and I'm, I'm going, Brock, what the hell is going on? You know, and we're getting rid of a 21-game winner for somebody nobody knew. And so we were all kind of, I don't know if everybody was up in arms, but I was. I, and I, I voiced it, not, not to anybody but the players. I never went up to the front office and voiced it. But it was, um, it was really eerie that, that you would trade a, a known good pitcher for somebody who nobody knew. And the funniest thing, this was probably May or June. I can't remember what. June 15th. June. And uh, Brock got on a team and Broglio went over to the Cubs. But first of all, that was, we got a guy from the Cubs. Cubs didn't know how to play. Lou, Lou really never learned how to play until he got here. We had to teach him how to play. He could run, he could hit, but he couldn't play. So we're thinking about this. And, and so long about the end of June or so, Brock was hitting probably two or 3,000 and <laughs> driven in about 85 runs. And I said, you know, I told you guys, this guy's really going to be the person that's going to make this team to go. What a you know. front runner. <laughs> yeah, this was really great. And, and to tell the truth, we would not have won that year if it hadn't been for Lou Brock. He single-handedly took us all the way. We had a guy finally that could get on the base. He could steal. I'm not so sure if everything that he did was for the team. I think a lot of it was for him. But when you're coming up and you're young, you got to make the team – I don't know that it can be for the team. You got to do what you can do, and you got to be noticed. And he certainly did. That, you know what? That's Gibson honesty right there. That, I mean, from the, that, that's so honest, Bob. I told, I told Bob about two months ago that Warren Buffett is so clear in his explanation uh, about financial matters. He's so clear to the point, everything. And Bob said, you know what? He, and Bob's known Warren for 50, 60 years, something like that. I've 64. known Warren since 64. Well, however long that's been. I'm not good at mathematics. Yeah, close enough. But, but Bob said, you know what? When you think, think about it, that's what I've always tried to be. And that more than anything, that clearness and that honesty and that shoot from the hip uh, no, nobody can say no like Bob. <laughs> it's a fact. Nobody can say no like Gibson. Well, nobody. Think about this, and and you all have experienced this. There there have been friends of yours, and and not just friends, but people that that you know, maybe not even know. They they come up and they start a conversation that you really don't want to be in. And, and they uh, come off the wall with a lot of different things. And you say, God, I wish I was somewhere else right now. <laughs> well, I would tell them that. <laughs> you know, this is a bunch of bullshit. I don't, I don't want to hear it. And, and why, why are you telling me this? I'm not interested in it. I hope you don't hate me for it. But go tell this to somebody else who wants to listen to it because I don't want to listen to it. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, buddy. Hey, my pleasure. Makes no apologies for it. None. You guys enjoying this? A lot of fun. You know, it's, it's not the way to influence people and make friends, but I, I really have enough friends. I don't, I don't need any more friends. I got, hey, this guy's a friend of mine. I got a couple of people sit right here, friends of mine. They're great people. And I tell you what I, I, I do, I, I, I kind of strain them. And when there's somebody that I think is going to be a really, really good friend, I keep them. And then when they're not, 
hey, see you later. Strain them. We're Strain them like, out. We're kind of like pets. Yeah, I, that's the way I am about life. And, and I hope, you know, I, I don't really want to offend anybody, but I'm not going to sit and listen to your bullshit when there's not anything that I want to listen to. And I just walk away. Uh, excuse me, I have to go to the restroom and I'll be back. And I don't and, come back. And people, and people will say, why Bob Gibson? He's arrogant. I'm intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, so what? That's yeah. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> did you feel, Sorry. though, did you feel when you were on the mound, you were as intimidating as those that saw you in the batter's box or those fans that watched you day in and day out? No, I, you know, my feeling about intimidation, intimidation comes from within. I, I don't intimidate you. You are intimidated by me. And I'm, I don't have to do anything but be myself. And if whoever I am, if that intimidates you, that's on you. That's not on me. I'm, I'm not changing. And, and I don't go out of my way, and nor did I did want, uh, do that when I was pitching. I, I wasn't trying to intimidate anybody. That was the way I went about my business. And if you were intimidated by that, then yeah. You know. <laughs> But it wasn't what something that I, I purposely tried to do. And if you wanted to fight, I had no problem with that either. Well, you know, I mean, I mean what was intimidating from the very start was your wind-up. And you never tried to be intimidating with it. That was the way you delivered the ball. No. But your wind-up was about as intimidating as any pitcher I have ever encountered. I'll, I'll tell you about my wind-up. Uh, and I did that as a, as a very young kid. And my, my brother, my oldest brother, Josh. Josh, Josh was my mentor. And he taught me all about pitching. He taught me about life. He taught me about people. He experienced a whole bunch of things in his life. And he taught me all of it. And when he said, now, as a pitcher, if you start doing all kinds of gyrations and what have you, and all of a sudden, you throw the ball, the hitter is, is looking for a bunch of things and all of a sudden the ball comes. And so I think that would be a good way to learn to pitch is just you know, winding up and doing all of this stuff and, and then the ball comes out and I think it'd be a little harder to, uh, to follow. And so that's what I did. And I, I wasn't doing that to try to trick anybody, it's just the way I learned. And then lo and behold about Fifteen years later or so, some guy came up with the idea that if a pitcher just stood, held the ball, wound up, and throw, that he would have a better, he would have a better sense of control. He would have better control doing that. And what he didn't realize was the guy who stands still, winds up and throw, at one point, he's at the same position that I am when I go through we, we get right here at the same time before we release the ball. He forgot to tell them that. And so, yeah, maybe they had a little better control, but I always felt that if I would start at second base and run up over the mound and throw it, I'd be better off than I would be just standing there and throwing it. And that's the way I thought about it. Tim, did you hear <clears throat> other never, players? I've never heard this, by the way. Ever. Well, Ever. I, didn't tell you, I didn't tell you a lot of things. <laughs> did you hear the opponent, though, uh, intimidated by Bob Gibson? I mean, there was I, I a heard by utterance, but... I heard by utterances, and we talked about Willie Horton, who made the last out in game one of the 1968 World Series, when he thought that slider had hit him. He went, oh, I mean, you're two feet from a guy. You can hear, you can almost hear him think. And any utterance of any kind, you're going to hear when, and I never got utterances out of any hitters like I did when Bob pitched. And, and it, was, it was a style because there were a lot of pitches. Number one, Bob's breaking ball is, is, is four-seam fastball broke so much that sometimes it would go at the hitter and be over the middle of the plate. That's what the slider was for Willie Horton to make the last out in that 17 strikeout game. And I heard Willie go, oh. 
And I still hear it in my mind. Because Willie, as I said earlier, still thinks that ball was inside. Right. How did broadcasting start for you? You were in uniform. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. In, in 1980, I came back in September. I'd forgotten about that. Thank you, partner. Um, I had come back in September. And to get the four decades in, I, I played in September of 1959 and throughout the 60s and 70s. And the Phillies asked me if I would be willing to suit up and be in uniform. So I, was, I started the first five, five months of the season as an announcer, and then I went on the field and suited up. I was on the, the roster for September, and I had a post-game show. I don't think it's ever been done. Uh, where I was in a Phillies uniform, and I would interview the opposing player if he was the star of the game, or of course the easier route would be to interview a Philly if he was the star of the game. And I would hook up with the, with the deal, and Harry Callis, the Phillies play-by-play -play announcer, would throw it to me, I'd interview and then throw it back. And that's how my broadcasting career got started with the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, did you get the point when you were interviewing with your uniform on? Did they kind of tell you that something was up? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I should have picked up on that. <laughs> but uh, see, I, what had happened, I, I had, I had uh, I'd broadcast with the team for the first five months of the season. Then I went down for September. So I knew it was kind of a lark. I knew I, knew I wasn't making any comeback or anything like that. But it was, it was kind of fun. And to my knowledge, I don't think it's ever been done no. where a player in uniform uh, interviewed the star of the game of both the opposing team no. and his team. And he's the best that's ever done it on television. Tim McCarver. And we are so lucky to have him here in St. Louis. Let's get to a couple of the players uh, that I want to ask you about and get your thoughts. We're going to talk about a guy that, it, let's just say, he's fairly unique, and that would be the radio voice and a former teammate here in St. Louis of the St. Louis Cardinals, and that would be Mike Shannon, also known as the Moon Man. How did he get the nickname the Moon Man? I, I named him the Moon Man. And, and the way the way it started, um, it was and I don't remember what year, but Mike and I were standing out in Centerfield, and the moon was bright, and and Mike was looking up, and so I looked around. And I looked up too, and I didn't I didn't know what he was looking. I said, "What are you looking at, Mike?" And he says. <coughs> I'm looking at the moon, big boy. I went, oh yeah, I, I see it. Well, what about it? He says, one of these days, man's gonna walk on the moon. And the next year, it happened. And I, so it had to be 68, because that was 69. And I went, damn. I'm gonna have to pay more attention to him. No, I don't think I'm gonna do that. But after that, I started calling him Moon Man. And that's how he got his nickname, The Moon. There's The Moon Man, Mike Shannon. Tim, you caught Bob Gibson more than anybody. You also caught Steve Carlton more than anybody. Tell us about the two and the differences between the two. And we should mention that Steve was on our air a couple of nights ago, and he credits his Hall of Fame career, a big portion of it, to the man on my right, and that's Bob Gibson, who taught him a slider and taught him how to be a pro. You're to be commended for what you did for Steve do, Carlton. Do you remember that incident, Bob? I mean, when Lefty came I, I, I do. I do remember. It was out in San Francisco. Uh, I don't know. You know, you, you talk a lot, and when you talk a lot, every once in a while, some of it will stick on the wall. And... Um, and I, I didn't consider myself a teacher of any sort. I, I really didn't. It's just that you, you have some things that you, you know. When you know something, you know something. Uh, regardless of what the wise tell you, if you know something, you know something. 
And, uh, <laughs> and, and I was talking to Steve about certain things. And the, the funniest thing, though, uh, a few years later, and I was talking to Steve, and uh, I had started the season, and I'd lost four games, five games in a row. I was pitching really well. You were 0-5. Well. I was 0-5, and, and I was p pitching really well. And uh, I said, Steve, we're out in San Francisco must have been a place because we were in San Francisco. And I said, Steve, and Steve wasn't pitching very well. I've noticed something that I think I could help you with. And he looked at me and says, how the hell are you going to help me? You're 0-5. <laughs> then I won 15 games in a row. Hey, Steve, how about now? But... Uh, but I, I talked to Steve a lot, and he listened to me. And you, you never really know that whatever you say is, is being, well, you know you, they hear you, but you don't know if they're listening to you. And uh, I, I, just, I talk a lot, and some of it can help you good. If not, then that's okay, too. What was the difference between the two? Well, Bob taught Steve the slider. He taught Steve the slider grip, and the year after that, as, as I recall, 1969, September 15th, 1969, Steve became the first pitcher ever to strike out 19 New York Mets. He lost the game four to three on two two-run homers by Ron Swoboda on pitches that were inside. But that was the genesis, that was the start of his slider becoming a dominant pitch. And in 1972, he had the remarkable year of being 27 and 10 for a team that won 59 games. The Phillies won 59 games and Steve won 27. It's never been done, I'm not even close. But would, uh, nothing equals Bob's 1.12. But I think if anything does, it would be Steve being 27 and 10 uh, in 1972. But the point is, Steve is elected into the Hall of Fame in 1994. Bob was elected in 81, right, Bob? 81. 81. So um, I'm asked to say a few words by the host, uh, George Grant. I didn't want to talk because, which is a rarity, as Bob reminds me all the time. Uh, the, the reason was I, I thought it was Lefty's night, and it was the night before the induction, and it's just a a glorious evening of Hall of Famers and their friends, everybody at every table, the Hall of Famers galore. It's just a marvelous uh, scene. And I got up and said, uh, after Lefty had spoken, I said, if Carl Hubble goes down in the history of baseball having the best screwball and Sandy Koufax the best curveball and arguably Nolan Ryan maybe with the mention of Randy Johnson with the best fastball. Steve Carlton will go down in baseball history as having the greatest slider in the history of the game. So we were teary-eyed, we hugged, and the whole bit, very emotional. And I'm lefty 6'5", I'm about 5'11", and I'm, I'm hugging him, and I see this familiar figure swimming through the crowd. It's number 45. And he's swimming through the crowd, and it took him about a minute and a half to get there. And he got about this far from my, in, in Gibsonian fashion, and he said, the best left-handed slider <laughs> in the history of the game. Is yeah, this true, and then, and, then yeah. he, and then he, again, in typical Gibsonian fashion, skulked away and kind of went, ha, ha, ha. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, well, see, Tim's left-handed, and, and he's always seen those right-handed sliders come from the other side. He's never seen my slider go away from him. Uh, that's true. That's true. There's another player I want to ask you about, and we were talking about this last night. We all three agree for both what he did on the field and off the field. Kurt Flood should be in baseball's Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Bob... Yeah, you I probably I, knew him as well as anybody. 
Yeah, Kurt. Kurt was my was my roommate for a long time. Year, years ago, we used to have to have roommates because they were they were saving money, and if you wanted to have a room by yourself, you had to pay for your room, and uh, that's the way that used to be. But Kurt was my roommate for I'm not even sure how many years, and I got to know him as well as I did anybody. And what a wonderful human being. I, I never, I was always mad at everybody. I can never not remember being mad at him. I can never remember being mad at him about anything. And he was just kind of jovial and he was very, very bright, very bright guy. And he'd say things that sometimes would go right over my head and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's talking about. But this guy, I thought, was, was second. As far as feeling and going getting balls, I thought he was second only to Willie Mays. Could not throw like Willie, could not hit like Willie. But as far as going and getting the ball, never saw any better. And of course, you know, when you play with a guy, you see him day in and day out. You see guys on other teams, you see them once in a while, you say, oh, that's a pretty good ball player. But you don't really get to know him because you don't see him every day. But for a guy that I saw every day, and I think I saw Willie Mays probably too much, but I thought Kurt was the best as far as going getting in balls. And, and a lot of people think that maybe he should be in the Hall of Fame because of what he's done for baseball, what he's done for baseball players as far as their salaries and that type of thing is concerned. But I think he should be in there for his playing, his playing only, great ball player. This is really funny. Bob, Bob is, now think about the early 60s. Bill White's traded from the Giants to the Cardinals. And he asked Bob to go out to Willie Mays' house. <laughs> you, you gotta tell that story. With Bob, with Bob with the glasses on, it's perfect. Yeah, this, this, was, this was in, uh, God, I hate to say what year it is, because there, there's not a lot of people in here old as I am, but this was in 1959. Um, Bill joined our ball club. He was, he was traded for Sad Sam Jones, if you remember that, big curveball, and Bill White was traded to the Cardinals for him. So the, the, this was in 59, and uh, we, we were going out to San Francisco, and Bill says, hey, Hoot, you want to go out to, to Willie Mays' house with me? Oh, yeah, man, I'd love to go. Of course, today I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't go to anybody's house who was on another team. But back then, Willie Mays, yeah, I, I want to go to Willie Mays. And the, the funniest thing is that when I, when I first started, I, 19 years old, I started wearing glasses because I, I had a problem with my singing. I didn't know what it was. And I can remember when I was, I was playing basketball at the Globetrotters, I was standing at the the foul line looking into the stands and I couldn't recognize anybody's face. So I thought I needed glasses. I went to the doctor and lo and behold, I got glasses. So I started wearing glasses. Well, I went out to Willie's house with Bill and I had glasses on. And uh, Bill knocked on the door, I think he rang the doorbell, rang the doorbell. And Mays, you know, he's got this real high pitched voice and uh, opened the door. How you doing? He says, I'm doing okay. Who's that? He said, that's Gibson. Gibson? You wear glasses? <laughs> I, I muffled the first thing because his mouth wasn't real clean. And uh, yeah, I wear glasses. He said, you're going to kill somebody out there one of these days. Never had to worry about him after that. Every time I pitched him, he pull away, and I pitched very well against him. I just make sure I kept the ball away and kept it down, you got when, him out. Bob told me that story back in the, in the middle 60s, early 60s, I said, well, you gotta keep everything away from him, and I'll guarantee you, he got a couple of hits the other way because he was so talented, but for the most part, Willie didn't bother Bob at all. I think he hit lower than 200 off of me. I, I would imagine yeah. that. because. Willie's first step was toward third base. Yeah. So, so Tim, you, you have a great memory, a, a baseball history, certainly with, with Bob Gibson. 
Who is the toughest guy for you guys to face day in and day out? Toughest, and then who's the guy that... For Bob or for... Yeah, for both of you. I mean, if you're behind the plate, Bob's on the mound. Who is that guy that's at the plate? You said, whoa, wait a minute. He's, this guy's tough. Ron Fairley was one. Oh, yeah, Ron Fairley. I got a story about Ron Fairley. Yeah. <laughs> Ron Fairley got, he got base hits off of me all the time. It was never, never triples, never doubles, never home runs. He just, he hit the ball over the shortstop's head, second baseman's head. And I just, I hated him. I, I could have crucified him. I, I just didn't like him. And uh, I got a base hit one day. He was playing with, uh, I think at the time, San Francisco maybe. Right, right. And I was on the first base, and he, he walks over to me, and he's just, you know, remember I told you I don't like the, a lot of the small talk. Damn, Hoot, I don't know how anybody ever hits you. You, you got such great stuff. Really pissed me off. <laughs> Bob did not like small talk. Yeah, and especially with that, this guy would get one, two hits every game off of me. And he's telling me, Bob, what great stuff I had and how nobody should ever get hits off of me. And he kept chit-chatting. And I, I wouldn't answer him. His nickname, by the way, was the Senator, Ron Fairley. Yeah, because he talks to him. Yeah. And, and I, I uh, yeah, <laughs> what, what they call that when you... When you keep on talking, you don't let anybody on. You talk for two or three hours. He could do that. Trump. <laughs> filibuster. A filibuster. And, uh, and so I didn't, I didn't say anything to him. I just looked at him and listened to him going, yang, 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 yang. And uh, so the inning was over. I didn't score or anything. And Joe Torrey was, was catching and Fairley came up to hit like the second time or whatever it is because he had already gotten a hit. And he looked back at Joe. He says, hey, Joe, I'm not going to like this at bat, am I? <laughs> he did not like that at bat. I hit him right in the middle of the back. It was the last time he ever talked to me. That's exactly the way I wanted it. Yeah. Get your hits and leave me alone. 1967, we've been talking a lot about that year. Uh, Bob Gibson takes a comebacker off the ankle, off the leg. Turns out to be a broken leg. July 15th, Roberto Clemente. You come back September 7th of that year to pitch. And then obviously you pitched wonderfully well in, uh, in the World Series. How were you able to come back so quickly from that injury? Well, first of all, I probably shouldn't have been pitching after I got hit anyway. But back in those days, they've, I guess the, 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 the medical field wasn't quite as good as it is today. And, you, uh, you actually threw five pitches I, I, in the game after. I threw broke. more than five pitches, I think. No. Through five. Five pitches. I pitched to All of them were high. I, five pitches. I pitched to a hitter, and then I pitched to Don That's Quinn correct. Denner. You walked the first hitter, you threw a ball, and then you went down. Five pitches. Sometimes you got to be stern. What am I going to say? And then the next hitter was Don Clendenin. I had, so that's more than five pitches. I had three and two on him, and I tried to get a little bit of extra to get him out because, you know, in three and two, you're looking for a fastball off of me. Of course, you got to be looking for a fastball to one and oh or nothing. And uh, I popped my ankle in half. It went pow. And I looked back. I thought somebody hit me from behind. But they, they sprayed it with that ethyl chloride, and you don't feel anything. It was frozen. So I went like, oh, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Today, they wouldn't do that to you. As soon as you get hit, they'd take you out. But they sent me out there, you know, probably got a, got an acre or two. <laughs> got an acre of land and the whole thing. It doesn't anyway, sit well with the older players. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I popped my ankle and uh, went to the, uh, the worst part about this was not even breaking my ankles. It was when I was into 
going into the hospital and I was on a gurney and there was like six people with papers and pads wanting to get in autographs. <laughs> I wanted to kick some ass that day. I, <laughs> I am dying and they want to give it. Don't you die until you sign this, you know. Oh, it was, it was horrible. At any rate, um, and Kurt Flood was with me. He was on a disabled list at the time, and he was, he was shooing them off, you know, with the spray gun. <laughs> and um, what happened was I, uh, I thought I wanted to keep my arm in shape. So with the cast on, we had a, um, a guy named Johnny Lewis who was a Cardinal player, and at the time he was working in the front office. And he and I would go out on the field, and I'd throw every day with my cast on. I mean, I wouldn't just toss the ball. I would throw from the mound with my cast on. I did that for seven weeks. And when they took my cast off, my leg was still a little weak, but my arm was still really, really strong. And uh, it took me about a week and then that's when I pitched the game in Philadelphia, and I pitched five innings, and we, we won the pennant that year. That was a clincher against that Dick Ellsworth. against Philly. And then there was no – I will promise you, nobody could read Bob better than me because I could stare into his eyes and look at him. 197 starts, I caught him, and I, I stared in those eyes, and there was a different glint that October – in his eyes than I'd ever seen. And this is, I think, re retrospective thinking. It might be a bit of revisionist history, perhaps, but I, I could still see the fire in Bob's eyes more than, maybe not any other time, but more consistently against the Red Sox. Plus, the Red Sox sold tickets in center field with white shirts. There, there was no uh, blackout in, in center field. They, the tickets cost $8 a piece, and for that reason, they played the games, and we couldn't see. With Bob Gibson pitching and you can't see, what are your chances? Forget it. I mean, I dropped 10 balls on strikeouts, or maybe eight, quit it. Quit it? <laughs> I didn't mean to bring that up because I knew I'd get that response. Uh, but it was on balls that I would normally catch. But with Bob, you couldn't center the ball anyway. But anyway, that was, that was um, all part of the deal. There was no way that Boston had a chance against Bob that year. Lonborg Champagne, <laughs> talking about that that morning of Game 7, and you've got Bob Gibson going. What was the mindset of the team going into Game 7? I mean, there's that saying in sports that you let sleeping giants lie. And we were a giant that year. We were a giant the next year and throughout the 60s. And the one thing we didn't need was more impetus going into Game 7. And that upset us a great deal. When Dick Williams, after Game 6, a writer asked him, what do you think about tomorrow? He said, well, it's Lonborg and Champagne and the kind of blase way he said, went about it. We didn't like that. And if we, if we needed an impetus, we had that from those headlines. You know, one of, the, one of the things about that ballpark in Boston, they got the Green Monster, which they, I, I'm not sure how far that is from home plate, but it's not very far, it's just high. <coughs> And I came in, and, and uh, right away there, there's you know, a handful of, of, uh, of newspaper people, and they were asking me about, hey, Bob, what do you think about that, that green monster? And at the time, I didn't know what the green monster was. And I says, oh, they, they got an animal here or something? I don't know. I says, I says, no, that wall out there. I said, the wall? I'm not worried about the wall. Where are you going to put the people? They couldn't put enough people in there. You know, you get in a World Series, you're looking for a really big paycheck. Uh, I think our paycheck was $6,000 or something like that. That was better. That was about half our pay salary anyway. I'm going to wrap it up with this. First question for Tim. Uh, we started saying that you've come full circle. And for Tim, uh, he grew up in Memphis, grew up a Cardinal fan, made your major, uh, made your major league debut at the age of 17, and now you're back. Catching Bob. That's My right. first start was catching Bob. 
And for the first time in his career, he struck out 10 that day, and I think I dropped 16 pitches. But who's counting? At least. But here you are, and these fans are here, and, and they're here because of you two. They love you guys. Um, they love the Cardinals. What, what does it mean this, this night, being back with the Cardinals and just coming full circle in your life, back to your baseball family? Well, from my particular standpoint, love is a two-way street. And starting with the Cardinals in 1959, 10 days out of high school, and, uh, and lasting with the Cardinals an extra stint in 1973 and 74, and then retiring in 1980, and going into the broadcast business, and doing a lot of network games, 18 years with Joe Buck, I worked with Jack Buck, uh, uh, Keith Jackson, uh, brings a smile to my face when I think of him, one of the great guys in the history of the game and certainly announcing, and then back with Dan. I didn't know Dan when we first started broadcasting five years ago. I know him very well right now, and he's one of my best friends. And, uh, and I'm not being smaltzy or emo too overly emotional, but I got two guys right here who are two of my best friends in life, and I love the fact that uh, that I've come full circle with the Cardinals. Thank you. And how about for you, Bob, to, to do these nights, uh, the opening days, the 67 reunion, 64, uh, these people love you, uh, and you'll yeah. always be loved. It, it, it's always fun. Yeah, as we, I said before, to get back and talk to the guys and see the guys that you haven't seen for a long time. And, um, of course, I, I, I see some of the guys constantly, but more so than, than the Cardinals. Of course, I love the Cardinals. The Cardinals still keep me involved. And, you know, this has been 100 years. I don't know how long. <laughs> they, they still keep me involved just like being here and what happens there when they, when they keep me involved they they expose me to the people who who really cause all of this uh, uh togetherness and, and that's the fans you know the the, the players we're not we because i don't get paid anymore but they're out there playing for money these people are paying money to come here and see us to, to see what we, we used to do and to appreciate what we used to do and to come to an event like this and not just this, I've been to like four or five events here in St. Louis at the ballpark or either somewhere close to the ballpark and, and have the fans that remember way back when because there's a lot of people that out here that are here that wasn't even born when I was playing but their parents have told them about what we did when when we were here, and and to have that type of appreciation, man, I I could come back here forever, and I just love it. And I love you. Yeah.